Good morning again, church. Uh, thankful you're here today. Um, if there are parents that have kids you'd like to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered up through fifth grade now, so you can walk them out to the patio. There'll be some leaders there ready for you. Uh, everyone else will be uh, together in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, about halfway through. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to use one. Uh, it helps to see what we're talking about. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter what I say. It matters what God says in His Word. So uh, you can pull out one of these blue Bibles, and we'll be on page 319 in those blue Bibles this morning. Um, for those of you who have been here, you know we're working our way through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And in all sincerity, I want to thank you for uh, coming back again. Uh, this is not an easy book. Um, it is a, a two by four to the forehead over and over and over for 12 weeks. And I'm amazed that uh, people continue to come back again and hear it. And so this says much about your desire to, uh, to hear from God. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the Bible's actually not a, a single book. It's a collection of 66 different pieces of writing that was written over a span of 1,500 years in multiple languages on multiple continents, and yet it tells a unified story in a lot of different ways. And so we Christians begin each week together by coming together to hear what God says to us, and sometimes that message is, is very easy, lighthearted, and full of joy. Other times it's very intense, and uh, this is uh, one of those times when it's um, intense. So uh, thank you for being here, and uh, we look forward to what God will say to us today. Um, this past week I did something risky. Um, I googled a question, and um, here was the question, what are the top lessons people learn the hard way? The answers were quite interesting. Let me share a few of them with you. Uh, most of them, no, no surprise, have to do with romance. Um, if, here's the first one, if your partner lies constantly, even constant white lies, it's bad. I'm not sure why you need Google to tell you that, but in case you do, there it is. Um, if the person loves you, he or she comes back. That's the second one. That's not true all the time, by the way. Uh, number three, don't microwave foil because it opens a portal to hell. <laughs> number four, don't commit your heart until she or he has two. How, if, how would that ever work? Um, number five, dish soap isn't the same as dishwasher soap. <laughs> And finally, my favorite, mixed signals are no bueno. <laughs> These are lessons Google tells us people have to learn the hard way. Um, we can all look back, probably not too far in the past, and see certain things that we too have had to learn the hard way. But there are some experiences that you don't want to have to learn that way. It is far too painful to actually go through with something and experience it. 
is far better to listen and to learn from others' hard experiences than it is to have to go through them yourselves. Are you with me? The book of Ecclesiastes is full of lessons that somebody had to learn the hard way so that we don't have to. That's what this book is ultimately doing. It's saying, here's somebody with all the resources of the world at his disposal and who was an intense enough guy that he decided, I'm going to figure out what life is about, even if it kills me in the process. And in God's wisdom, he has recorded for us the experience of this person who had every kind of experience you could ever think might provide meaning in life and then put it into the Bible so that we don't have to do all the same stupid things so that we can learn from his experience so we don't have to do it. That's what this book is seeking for us to do. Now remember, the question the book of Ecclesiastes answers is found right in the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a way of simply asking, is there meaning in this life? Is life worth it? That's an intense question. And friend, if you've never asked yourself that really, deep down inside, then it's simply because you haven't lived long enough that something has rattled you down to your very core. Everybody asks that question. As we move through this book in the fall, each week we'll be uncovering yet another experience through which the author tried to find the answer to those questions. And then we'll find his answer. The dead ends he took, we do not have to take. You can be spared the pain that he went through if you'll simply heed what God says in his word. So join me today as we pick back up with the next experience in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. A church, Ecclesiastes, is a book brim with observations. It is the author viewing life in this broken, fallen world as he often witnessed things not working like they're supposed to. Under the sun is his preferred way of cluing us in, that he's about to tell us, this thing is broke. It is busted. It ain't supposed to be like this. You'll notice that phrase, under the sun, in verse 16. And anytime you see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, sit up on the edge of your seat, because it's about to say, here, here's another thing that's not working like it should. Don't go down this road. Don't look there. You won't find the answer to the meaning of life there because that's broke. Anytime you see it, 
Pay attention. As the preacher searched high and low to find out, is there anything to be gained in life in this world? He entered into what we today would call a courtroom. And peering in, he saw something that horrified him. He saw that in that place, in the place of justice, there was wickedness. In that place, in the courtroom, the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Of all the places on the planet where we ought to expect, things aren't broke. Things work like they're supposed to. The guilty are seen to be guilty and are punished. The righteous who are accused are seen as innocent and set free. That is what a courtroom is for. That's why it exists. And he saw in that place, even there, wickedness seems to win. Now, I thought this morning about walking through examples of that in our own day, but it is too painful. You don't need me to do that. You are well aware of those facts. And those facts point to a larger reality. That large reality is that under the sun, people are often awful to each other. And they get away with it. I'm not talking this morning about uniquely cruel acts of evil like 9-11. Or the person with the 25-pound suicide vest who just blew up a whole bunch of people in Kabul who are trying to escape that very kind of thing. Those are, those are uniquely evil events that don't happen everywhere every day. I'm speaking more about everyday cruelty, the stuff people do seem to get away with. Relationally, people harm each other. Financially, people get ahead by knocking others down. Socially, people manipulate each other all the time for their own gain. And even legally, things fall apart. People twist and malign the law without concern for the good of others. And as verse 17 points out, while courtrooms under the sun don't seem to get it right, God will. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Pastor Tad last week helped us see that there's a time for everything, everything. And the connection between last week's text and this one is that, time. There is a time in which this will stop. God will set it right. Verse 17 picks up the truth and applies it to our innate desire for justice. A good desire, a holy desire, a desire that isn't, that isn't present in a Christian and not present in a non-Christian. It's present in everybody. There is a desire in us. It's part of what it means to be a human being. That things that are unjust be fixed. There is a time for every matter and every work. Right? But... At least in the sense of finality, that time is not yet. 
That time isn't here. And that's precisely what bothers us so much. Now, I'd like to push pause for a moment and explain what's going on in light of the rest of the Bible, because Ecclesiastes isn't going to do that. That's not its objective. So, let me take two or three minutes to, to sort of take a right-handed turn and just say, let's zoom out and look at this from the standpoint of the rest of the Scriptures. Friend, God will deal with every single evil deed. God will set things right. If that were not true, there is absolutely no reason for you to get out of the bed. Even though it seems like injustice is winning today, it is not. And I tell you that not as someone speaking um, with a lack of experience in this regard. We know from the New Testament that Jesus, the God-man, came as our substitute, bore the wrath of God for others on Himself, thereby revealing God to be both just and justifier. That is the great scandal of the gospel, that God revealed His ability to deal with injustice by absorbing injustice upon Himself. There is no other religion with a God who makes claims like that. And these aren't claims. These are historical facts. This is what God has done. But we're awaiting the full and final full experience of that. That's what will happen when Jesus comes back. And so until then, uh, we're doing what that double arrow right over there in the middle, that middle circle, points to. We look back at what Jesus already accomplished. We look ahead to the full experience of it in the future. Friend, if you don't know that, then what a gift God's given you in bringing you here today. This is what the Bible is all about. It is the message you most need to hear. It is what I want to encourage you to consider your most urging, pressing need is to get involved yourself by turning from sin and trusting Jesus Christ. Because you owe God a moral debt you cannot possibly repay. But the message of the Bible is that Jesus has paid that debt. And not only did He pay the debt, but He's given you His moral credit. That's the gospel. I hope you'll stick around after this gathering, in between, there's 30 minutes where nothing's going on except people running around with food and talking to each other. And I hope you'll talk to somebody sitting near you or who you came with, or I'll stand right here and wait the whole 30 minutes. Come talk with me. Let us tell you more about Jesus. Now, in the resurrection, we see that not only did Jesus pay that debt, but he was vindicated because he didn't deserve to die. And so, in his 
tremendous act of obedience in his death, God showed him to be vindicated in his resurrection. And God then appointed Jesus to be judge over all. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the righteous judge who will bring about final judgment in his return. So what Ecclesiastes is is sort of vaguely pointing ahead to, the rest of your Bible answers, that all who are counted righteous in Christ will not bear the consequences for their actions because Jesus did. And all who, who don't trust Christ will bear the consequences of their actions because Jesus didn't pay for them. Now, when does this happen? Nobody knows. It happens whenever Jesus comes back. Good gosh, I hope it's soon. But it happens when Jesus returns. Now, because we live after Jesus came, this is unjust. God gave me big Dumbo ears, and they still won't hold this mic. Because we live after the the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, then because the Bible is complete now, we know way more about this than the author of Ecclesiastes did. We've got 3,000 years of more information. And so... While we feel some sense of injustice, it's nowhere near as intense as this guy did. Because all he knew was God's going to judge. That's it. We know way, way, way more. But are you appropriating what you know? Are are you taking the feast that's set before you and chewing on every bite? Or are you ignoring the meal? He knew that God will judge, but he did not know when or how. And so the more he saw injustice delayed, the more he wondered, is it really justice denied? That's the same thing we feel. The fact that Jesus hasn't yet come and therefore some justice is delayed, can cause us to feel as though it is justice denied. This is why people take matters into their own hands. This is why some people walk away from the church. We cry out to God to delay no longer. The text says, rightly so, God will judge. But we're asking the question, that's what you will do, but what are you doing now? Why does this stuff keep happening over and over and over and over? Why would God let it? God, you will judge, but what are you doing today? 
God, you will fix the fact that the top 1% of earners in America now own more than the bottom 80%. By the way, that's every single person in this room. God, you will blot out racial injustice on the beautiful canvas of a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. God, you will hold the unrepentant and abusive husband eternally responsible. But why are you waiting so long? And what are you doing today? These are the kinds of things the author of Ecclesiastes was bothered by. And so fascinating, it's so fascinating that now he gives us the answer. That's the next verse. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is. So here's the answer on what God's doing now. God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of the man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward. His answer is, God will bring final justice. But for now, God is testing humanity. The word testing um, is the exact nuance of that word is disputed among scholars. But probably the idea is uh, that of God proving or exposing to us what we are. The delay of final divine judgment has the, ex- the, the intended effect of exposing to humanity what our condition is apart from God. God's holding up a mirror. That's why injustice continues. Because it reveals that we really aren't good people who sometimes do bad things. And despite all the technological advances and knowledge that's gained, the world is not getting better and better. God's holding up a mirror. That's what God's doing today. People may dress up and pretend to be nice, each other, nice to each other, but this is a dog-eat-dog world. People treat each other like animals. If the last 18 months has shown anything on a global scale, it has shown that. And we're still not paying attention. That's why I'm so glad you're willing in great humility to come get beat up for months at a time as we walk through this book because you are not going to hear the truth anywhere else. The church is the source of the final hope. We are animal-like in our behavior And that thought led the preacher to see that our fate 
is also just like the animals. Animals are born, they live, they die, they rot in the ground. People are born, they live, they die, they rot in the ground. As Genesis 3, verse 19 puts it, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now remember, friends, that Ecclesiastes is the, the wisdom from God of a man who learned everything the hard way. And therefore, it is all wrapped up in observation and experience. And because of that, it's not logical. It, it's not linear. It doesn't flow from A to B to C to D. It's more like the swirling of a toilet bowl in which one thing leads to another, leads to another, and you're slowly sucked down into darkness again and again and again. And so th that's why we can go in a single paragraph from something soaring and true like God will bring justice down to I'm going to rot like my dog. That's why that can happen. But don't miss the message. As the preacher observed injustice, his mind was encouraged to know that God is just, and He is. But do you ever have thoughts that kind of one bounces to another, to another, to another, and you're like, holy cow, how did I end up here? That's what's happening. It happens in your Bible. And, and yet they're all connected. So here's his line of thought. There's injustice, but God's just. Thank you, God. Now, a lot of books of the Bible in there, that's their function, but not this one. God, God there's injustice, but God, you're just. Thank you. Praise God. But, uh, if God's, God's just, then why isn't he fixing it now? Oh, well, it's because he's showing me that I not only receive injustice, I give it. He's holding up a mirror. And that then leads to, oh, well, we treat each other like animals. We're savages. And, and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, my dog I buried last week, I'm going there too. That's the line of thought. Apart from God's enabling grace and empowering spirit, we treat each other like animals, which makes sense because the animal dies ultimately because of the curse of sin. We die because of the curse of sin. Both return to dust. Now, this ate at the preacher that from the vantage point of life in this world, who knows if we're actually different than the animals at all? Maybe pet and person don't end up in different destinations even in the afterlife. So now he's asking a really hard question. Today would be more apt to say all dogs go to heaven. But they certainly didn't think that. This whole section builds to the question, if all die like beasts anyway, then does justice really matter? It doesn't seem like it. That's what he's saying. 
Sometimes life seems inherently and eternally unjust, and maybe it actually is. Now, if you're a bit bothered that that question is in the Bible, if you're a bit bothered that what you felt inside at some of the darkest moments in your life could actually be true, then we're on the right track this morning. That's what this is supposed to be doing to us. Now, what's the solution to what we've explored today? Well, what's in vogue now is to fight injustice. That is the rallying cry of our day. More so in the last 24 months than any time I've ever been alive. That is seen to be uh, the reachable goal and the prime objective of life and the card to pull in every circumstance. Fight injustice. But is that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes? We'll look at verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to what who can bring him to see what will be after him? It almost feels like the joke that you just don't understand the answer at all. It's like, that ain't funny. Doesn't it strike you that way? Like, that can't be the answer. And yet, there it is. Let me see if I can explain. In light of the injustice around us, in light of the self-revealing nature of God waiting that exposes our animal-like treatment of each other, in light of the fact that pets and people both end up alike under the ground, head off to the office and whistle while you work. That's his answer. Here's what the preacher's saying, though. Life under the sun is full of complicated enigmas. So how in the world do we deal with that? Well, friends, for most of us, most of the hours we spend awake for the rest of our lives, we will spend at work. Most of the time, you are awake for the rest of your life until Jesus returns. You will spend working. Not by a little bit by a lot. And so what do we do while we wait for King Jesus to return and bring justice? We enjoy our jobs and the fruit that comes from them. We put our hand to something we're good at, hopefully. Some of us have to take just whatever job there is. There are seasons of life that way. But hopefully you can find something you're good at and enjoy it, and earn a living, and do our part in those arenas to live righteous lives. That's the answer. Now, 
I am well aware that some of you think Chuck has gone absolutely bonkers. That can't possibly be the answer. This sounds more like um, a, a manipulative TED talk on how to get people to work more for their bosses. But friends, it's almost as though the writer anticipated we would feel that way because then he just pushes rewind and in the next text he says the same thing a different way. But it says the same thing. Look at it with me. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw that all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work which come from a man's envy of his neighbor, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. You know when you fly on Southwest, and you, you, so you don't have a seat. You just got to sit next to whatever happens to be there. This is the guy you don't want to sit down next to. Now, before we tackle these verses, uh, please hear this disclaimer. There are, in fact, other passages in the Bible that talk about a pl- the place for the righteous to stand for what's righteous in this life. To, for those with means to help those without means. There are places in the Bible that speak of that. At times, Christians are to lead a humble, righteous opposition on behalf of those who are genuinely oppressed. That is in your Bible. But that's not what Ecclesiastes is talking about. And so that's for a different sermon. All good theology exists in tension, where the goal is, how do I maintain the fact that God says this and this? How do they work together? And we pray, and we meditate, and we talk, and we try to work it out in our experience as a church. This is why we go through whole books of the Bible, so that we deal with all the themes that are in the Scriptures, not just the ones that are popular today. This is not a call for us to do justice. Those are other texts. That means sometimes there are times to speak up, and other times there are times to put your head down and do your job. This text is saying, put your head down and do your job. As the preacher reflected on the fact that injustice and oppression continue, it led him into real despair, this time deeper and darker than the last paragraph. The last paragraph, he just said, me and Fido are both going in the dirt. 
This time he says, it'd be better off if I'd never been born. From the perspective of life without God, friends, that is a thinking man's good conclusion. Because life is full, overflowing with hardship, difficulties, oppression, heartache, injustice. The world isn't full of great people who every now and then screw up. The, full, the world is full of rotten people who every now and then do something good. Now, especially verse 4, especially as verse 4 puts it, he says, my solution in the last paragraph was do your job and enjoy it. But then as he looked at work longer, he saw, ugh, even at work, there's injustice. Because what drives most people's thinking about their work? Envy. Jealousy. That is the fuel that makes the economy go. It drives our purchases, our long hours at the office, even the whole business of business. Envy. God's good gift of work and enjoyment at work gets all twisted around by the sin of envy. If you labor to get promoted over other people because you're envious of their success and you want it yourself, uh, if you slave hours and hours and hours beyond what's really expected in order to prove yourself that you are as good as others, maybe better. If your goal is to make a lot of money and so to convince yourself that you matter, then, beloved, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says you're ruining the very good gift of work. That like a piece of fruit that looks healthy on the outside, but then you bite into it and it's rotten on the inside, that's what you're turning the majority of your time into. Something good that you're making rotten. You're chasing the wind. You're living meaninglessness. It's far, far, far better to give up on envy, to quit sowing seeds of jealousy because they don't produce any good fruit. They only produce rotten fruit. It's better to enjoy work irrespective of how your upward mobility or your earnings compared to anybody else. What difference does it make? It doesn't matter. Find a job you like that pays the bills and enjoy it. That's it. And do that until Jesus returns. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in how to deal with the difficulties of injustice delayed. Workplace envy is everywhere. Now, notice with me the way the passage gives us the three possible responses to workplace envy. You've almost made it to the end. Hang in there. You're, you're in a boxing match. This is we're, the, the 12th round bell is dinging. All right? 
There's three ways, the author says, workplace envy gets dealt with. The practicality of this is absolutely unbelievable. Number one, it's in verse 5, he says, refuse to work. If work is the solution, but work is rotten, or it can be, then your first option is to refuse to work. It uses the language of folding your hands. That's a way of saying, instead of doing something with these, I'm just going to fold them, put them on my belly as it grows and grows and grows because I sit on the couch. Friend, if you choose that route, and frankly, many, many people do today, then uh, you are choosing cannibalism. You, you are going to sit on the couch and consume yourself. That's what he says. Even with ketchup, you don't taste good. So that ain't a good option. Now, please hear this, and I say it 100% in love. If you are under 30, that is almost certainly going to be your natural propensity. It's the air you've been brought up in. You were brought up in a world in which everybody, no matter what you do, gets a trophy. And that world doesn't exist. And so if you sit like this, you ain't going to receive anything good. You're just going to eat yourself. Now, the second option is in verse 6, and that's give yourself completely to work. If you're 30s, definitely if you're 40s, 50s, 60s, this will be your propensity. It says, pursue two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. What that means is, um, if you look to climbing the corporate ladder, you're going to have two handfuls of toil. Your life is going to be full of more and more and more and more and more work. And the higher you get, the more stress and complication there is. And uh, you're just chasing the wind. That doesn't work. That kind of work doesn't work. Now, finally, there's one response that is the one that's commended to us. And here's the practical, hands-on, walk out those doors in a little bit, admonition of this passage. It's the start of verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness. This is the most counterintuitive thing I think I could possibly say to a group of people today. It's the thing you'll never, ever, ever hear anybody else say apart from Scripture about what to do about injustice. Ecclesiastes' answer is choose a handful of quietness. What does that mean? Friends, the text is telling us there is a way to inward peace, holy contentment, satisfaction, and rest. It's called a handful of quietness. 
How do you get that? Well, wake up, thank God for the day, pray for His help, and then go to your job, work hard, enjoy it as many days as possible, and then go home content. That's it. That is the mainstay for the majority of our time until Christ returns. I read an author this week that said, um, any friend can share your joys and your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. Look for people who are also content with a handful of quietness and enjoy things together. Hopefully, the church is full of people like that. Now, the final question I want to answer, and I can do so in about 90 seconds, is what does Jesus have to do with any of this? Uh, Let me close by pointing you to a very, very interesting fact. If you were to turn to Matthew in your Bible, you don't need to do it, but if you were to turn to Matthew, so that's the start of the Gospels. So Jesus alive on earth, physically present in a body, and you were to read the rest of the New Testament and simply ask the question, uh, tell me about Jesus's, chronologically tell me about Jesus's life. You'd find quite a bit about his birth. Then you'd find one scene uh, when he was 12. Then you'd find absolutely nothing from 12 to age 30. Then you'd find a whole bunch about ages 30, 31, 32, 33. Then he dies and leaves. That's what you'd find. Why is there nothing from 12 to 30? Nothing. No liberal scholar, no conservative scholar, no staunch Republican, no Democrat is going to read their Bibles, read a Bible, and say, well, here's what it says Jesus was doing for those years. It ain't there. Why? Well, we get one little hint. The hint is Jesus was a carpenter. So from age 12 to age 30, what was Jesus doing? He was doing his job, quietly. Jesus was doing exactly the thing the author of Ecclesiastes says to do. He learned to trade from his stepdad. He got up each morning. He thanked God for the day. Then he quietly went to work and did his work. And that was the majority of his life. Jesus, the one who could touch anyone and heal them, who could speak words that gave life, literally. 
the one who knew everything about everyone and could fix any part of them, spent the majority of the hours of his life at work, working in quietness. Why? That's what you do in this life. That is how you spend the majority of your time. That is the way to get through. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Church, I pray that you too would go radio silent like Jesus. And in context of injustice, oppression, and envy, let us work with quietness like Jesus. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Father, this has been another hard message, but so incredibly timely. Would you please come to our aid and help us to believe it? In Jesus' name, amen.